0: Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode six, recorded on June 18th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Yes, and hello to everyone out there, including the fathers. Happy Father's Day to you. Today, we have quite the gift. It has been a busy news week in open source. And I think our first story is probably our favorite. I'm pretty happy to announce that a friend of the show, Mr.
1: Ikey, founder of Solus, is going full time with the project. Yeah, he came on unplugged, didn't he, this week and talked about it. And it's excellent news. It's excellent news for him personally. And it's excellent news for Solus as a project. Some people have doubted that they were serious about it, even though looking at the project, I don't know how you could do that. But now instead of just doing it in his spare time, he's going to be full-time on it, putting all his resources into it and treating it as a proper job. And so he's relying on Patreon to do that. So he's taking a pay cut, but it's got to be good news for Solus. And I think the wider Linux ecosystem, certainly the desktop ecosystem because it's going to drive more competition.
0: Yep, I think that's exactly why we both thought it was a good idea to put it right here is as two desktop Linux
1: users, we're very excited to see the competition step up a notch and it's going to be great for everybody. Yeah, and it's probably going to accelerate the KDE version which you know is coming, we're going to get a KDE ISO sooner or later, plasma desktop. And it just means that his plan to move to cute and everything is going to be accelerated because it's amazing how much work him and the other guys on the team get done part-time. So now, in a few weeks, when he goes full-time on it, it, I think it's just going to accelerate and it's going to be unbelievable development pace. I think a lot of projects have been working hard. In
0: fact, we have some release news to get through, starting with Debian 9 Stretch. Released yesterday, after 26 months of development, Debian presents the new stable version 9, codenamed
1: Stretch, which is going to be supported for the next five years. Yeah, after 26 months, it's finally ready. And th- there's some good stuff in here. If you install it, it's not that much different from 8. But if you look at the release notes, you find that they have done a lot of stuff here. And I think one of the most important ones is the reproducible builds project. So over 90% of Debian 9 is reproducible, which means that you can actually produce a an exact binary using the source code, because that's something I've uh, often... Not worried about, but it's something I've thought about, that you've got the source code and you've got the binary, but unless you can produce a binary that is exactly the same, then should you trust it? Well, coming from Debian, yes. And you'll have all sorts of signing and stuff where I'm not particularly worried, but I think that mm-hmm. it is important for open source to have this reproducibility, and it's good to see Debian making effort here and, and making it over 90% of uh, the, the packages in Debian are going to be reproducible. That That's great.
0: Yeah, that's huge. And it's really an important verification feature, which uh, some very high security installations require. Also kind of notable. I think they made the big first uh, switch to the modern branch of a uh, GNU PG in uh, this version of Debian. So that's also kind of a nice security improvement. And of course, for us desktop users, Firefox and Thunderbird are officially back in stretch. They are replacing the debranded
1: versions of Ice Weasel and Ice Dove. Yeah, it's good that they finally sorted that out. They sorted it out a while back, but now we've got a proper release with it. Hopefully we can just put that stuff behind us now. And speaking of Debian 9, Tails 3.0 is out this week, which is based on Stretch. Yeah, which is the, the ultimate privacy privacy distro, isn't it?
0: They really are stepping it up, too. So they have something they've been working on hard for a while. I think, they, I think like three years in the making is Tails Greeter, which is an application that configures Tails at startup, and it's been completely redesigned for ease of use. Now, Tails is, the whole idea with Tails is to give users a secure out-of-the-box experience that supports encrypted storage, GPG, all of the features you might want for online banking, cryptocurrency, or if you're just a little paranoid. And now they're trying to bridge that gap with things like the Greeter and other features like polishing their GNOME desktop that make it just basically a usable desktop distro now
1: Yeah, and of course Tor, we can't forget that That's one of the, the major selling points here That all the traffic is routed through Tor Yeah, and they make it really easy to use
0: proxy services and set up VPNs It's pretty nice So it's got Tor Browser 7.01, which is based on Firefox 52 Which is kind of nice because that's a long-term support version of 52 Yeah, they call it ASR, don't they? Extended Support Release yeah, extended support release. And there's also one caveat with Tails 3.0. This is the version they've dropped 32-bit support. So
1: older machines, kind of out of the picture. It's going to only work on 64-bit systems. But to be fair, is I'm going to work on a 32-bit only system? Not very well. Probably not. There's also one other gotcha, and it doesn't apply across the board. But
0: Tails is failing to start on some computers with Intel graphics. And there's a link in the show notes
1: about that. Yeah, and it's pretty picky about what USB sticks it'll work on. It didn't work on my USB 3.0 SanDisk one because they apparently can't be trusted. But then I tried another USB 2.0 one and waited and waited for it to DD and waited and waited for it to boot. Yeah, um, And yeah. that worked fine. Yeah, congratulations. You have met bug
0: 12696 in their database, which is uh, <laughs> something wrong with detecting, with working with some types of USB media. And did you get the error skipping non-removable device or something to that degree? Because there is a workaround. No, I can't remember what it was now. I think it was just sort of a black screen in the end. Okay. You might check uh, in the known issues section, there is a workaround you can use, a little Pearl magic, and for some reason, <laughs> I guess it opens up more USB sticks.
1: Okay. But the big question here is, are we actually going to use this for anything? Is it, I'm happy enough with a standard Zubuntu desktop that's fully up to date to do my online banking. I don't have any real need for Tor apart from a bit of testing. Is it something that you're going to use? Because for me, I've tested it out and it's good to know it's there. But personally, I, I can't see myself using it. If I was still in the position of owning a
0: lot of Bitcoin, and I mean a lot, and I wanted to move large amounts around or something like that, I could see myself booting this up in a virtual environment or having a computer dedicated to certain types of communication. There have been moments where I've had a couple of email exchanges where I had to be really kind of careful with the email, and I... I, I could see a machine dedicated running a distribution like this, but for the most part, I'm I'm kind of drawing a blank for my personal use. I don't think I'm fancy and important enough. I'm not like some secret agent or uh, some millionaire working with funds. I just a podcaster in Washington,
1: <laughs> so I don't really have a need for it. Yeah, there are some people who are going to find this very useful: journalists dealing with Snowden and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very and good in point. some countries as well. I mean, mm-hmm. the UK is getting that way, so maybe I'll have more yeah, use for it in the future. That's
0: true. And you know, things can always change here in the States. So something that might apply to more of us is Firefox fifty four. It's luring you back in, Chrome switchers, with its new content process, a separate UI process, and get ready for it, ladies and gentlemen, a GPU acceleration process.
1: Yeah, it's only been eight years they've been working on this, so uh you know, finally we get there. I, you like that? I left that part out to make you say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I did totally stop there. I know. I kind of. I am kind of um, a little underwhelmed because it's also not available for a lot of us if you have add-ons that block it, mm. which is
1: the case on Ubuntu right now. Yeah, or the box with Ubuntu because of the Ubuntu modifications add-on that doesn't work with it. But I think that will get fixed fairly yeah. soon, hopefully. I agree. And one of the great things about Firefox is the add-ons. And I've got a ton running, and so therefore, all all it takes is one of them to not be compatible, and then I don't get this benefit. And so that's why, when I first heard it was having this multi-process architecture, I was using it and thinking, it's not really any different. And then I read a bit more about it. Okay, that's why, because of my add-ons. Right. And that's really my favorite thing about
0: Firefox as well. But there is a path. So Firefox 54 includes the new web extension APIs, which are hooks that allow for add-ons that work across multiple types of browsers. And in November, when Firefox, I think 57 is released, Firefox is only going to support the add-ons that use web extension APIs. Everything else is going away, including
1: Firefox's original Zool overlay add-ons. And you talk about Firefox 57. I remember the big upgrade from 3 to 3.5. It makes you feel old, doesn't it? These numbers, Joe. No, these numbers are ridiculous. I I, I remember when it hit 13 and I
0: thought, wow, Firefox 13. And then Chrome comes along with its 60s and
1: it's just getting out of control. Yeah. Do you think this is too little too late for Firefox? Because the, the market share... Most people use Chrome now, even on Windows, they're not using IE and Edge, they're basically using Chrome because they've just realized that it's a much better experience. And Firefox just seems to have fallen by the wayside. Yeah, it's default in a lot of desktop Linux distros. But... One of the first things people do is install Chrome. Presumably, that's one of the first things you do when you install a distro.
0: Admittedly, yes. And I think it's going to be that way for a while. I don't think it's ever too late. It's not like the web's going anywhere, and Chrome's not getting any smaller. And Firefox can just keep chipping away at this, and it could end up being the iPhone Android situation where... A smaller percentage of the market is on iPhone, but generally those consumers are more appealing to developers, so they release on the iOS platform first. Something like that could happen with the Firefox-Chrome situation, where Chrome ends up being the vast majority. But Firefox walks away with a solid 20%, maybe? I'm totally making up numbers here. But you see how there could be a bit of victory
1: for Firefox without having to be the king. Well, uh, talking about Tails there, that's what Firefox is great for, isn't it? The the fact that it is completely open source and can be used for other projects like Tails and the Tor browser. Yeah. Whereas with Chrome, okay, you've got Chromium that you can use, but even that needs some proprietary stuff. So if you care about privacy, then Firefox is the browser for you, presumably. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I think they could make the performance argument pretty soon as well. Benchmarks that we've linked in the show notes from
1: ours show that it's pretty competitive in memory usage and speed. Yeah, but it just doesn't have that brand loyalty that, that it once did. It, it was once upon a time before Chrome came along. It was just huge, wasn't it? It was starting to seriously compete with Internet Explorer, whereas now yeah. Yeah. you know, Chrome has taken over. I think it was a few weeks ago there was that Chrome has won post- Yeah. Well, I I kind of feel optimistic if they
0: just keep going in this direction. But there is also just a bit of housekeeping with the uh, 54 release. Mozilla has shut down the Aurora release channel instead of a four-stage release pipeline where they have Nightly, Aurora, Beta, and then Stable. Firefox will now just
1: jump from Nightly to the Beta channel, cleaning things up a little bit. Yeah, simplifying things. uh, I'm not going to miss it personally. Maybe some people will, but if it lets them concentrate more on things like this, multi-process stuff, then I'm all for it. Yeah, it's more straightforward. To be honest with you, I always found it a little confusing. As an outsider, I thought it was a little
0: excessive. I could see needing a channel like that internally, but for the public testing, it seemed too much. Keep it simple with DigitalOcean. Go to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code, here's the thing, after you've created your account. You hit that, it applies to your account, and you get a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a simple, fast, Easy way to spin up a Linux system on a great infrastructure. You can get deployed within seconds. All systems use SSD, from the itty-bitties to the huge, ginormous monster systems. They have super-fast lightning network up to 40 gigabits into the hypervisors with data centers all over the world, a simple, intuitive API to work with it, storage you can attach easily. And one of my favorite features with DigitalOcean is their documentation. They have a lot of one-click deployment open-source projects, but then, of course, you start using these things, and they're awesome. You want to take it a little further... Here's one they've just posted recently. It really would work on any Ubuntu system. It's a tutorial on how to enable SFTP without shell access on Ubuntu 16.04. Go take advantage of that. Go to digitalocean.com, and if you create an account, use our promo code, here's the thing, digitalocean.com, promo code, here's the thing. Great cloud servers in 55 seconds or less. Digitalocean.com, promo code, here's the thing.
1: Last week, we talked about the Ubuntu kernel live patching coming to 14.04 and we had quite a few questions about that. And so you reached out to Dustin Kirkland about this, didn't you? And he got back with some very thorough answers.
0: Yeah, he sure did. So Dustin Kirkland's the Ubuntu product and strategy guy at Canonical and also I think one of the main people behind live patch because I chatted with him right when it came out. So I knew he would be the guy to ask. And Joe, you really stumped me. You said, well, what happens if, say, you've been running for eight to nine p- months with live patches coming in, you've never rebooted your system, and the power goes out, or your system crashes and reboots, are all those patches reinstalled, or do you boot up with a vulnerable kernel again? And so uh, Dustin's response kind of broke down in two ways. He said, first of all, they release an Ubuntu kernel update every three weeks, like clockwork. So if you install that kernel patch every three weeks, you, you get all of the updates, But assuming you haven't been installing your patches every three weeks and your system reboots or you needed to reboot in an old kernel for software compatibility, then, yeah, initially it would boot up as an unpatched kernel. And then after 60 seconds, the live patches would be reapplied back to the system, right back into memory. And and, And why 60 seconds? So that's just in case there's any kind of critical issues, you could stop it. Uh, and depending how old your kernel is, you could have many live patches. We speculated there probably hadn't been a lot of live patches. Well, Dustin's been running it on his local system, and he has 44 live patches applied to
1: his system alone. Yeah, and he said that there have been hundreds to date, because we speculated there were only a few, as you say, but no, there have been hundreds.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating the way this system works, and I was confused. I was like, how are you doing this? Are you delivering these as apt packages? Are they available to my package manager? Can I uninstall them? And it's... The patches that they release as a standard release every three weeks, those come down as standard app packages. But the live kernel patches are being
1: delivered with Snap. Yeah, which we shouldn't be surprised about, given that that is what Canonical is putting most of their resources into, seemingly, these days. Yeah, but talk about a real dog fooding
0: experience here. I mean, this has got to be one of the most critical ways they could use Snap packages, if there was mm. one. And
1: in scale, that's a pretty big testament to
0: Snap packages.
1: Yeah, and the fact that they rolled it out in production to anyone who wants it means that they must be confident with it. Yeah, he
0: also sent me just a quick uh, setup on how to get started on my 16.04 system. And also today, I noticed that they are including some graphical options in future releases of Ubuntu to get started,
1: so that could be really interesting. Yeah, that's going to lower the barrier to entry, which I suppose is good, but I don't know. I still stand by my concerns. I mean, okay, fair enough. You've got this 60 seconds, sure. but um, I, I just I like to apply the patches, reboot, and no that's it. Well, you could do that every three weeks and be
0: solid. And then this live patch service would just sort of get you in between if there was something major, like a a major vulnerability that came down the road. Yeah, I think that is the use case that I would have for it, really. Big thank you to Dustin, though, for a really complete response. Uh, It really helped improve my understanding of how it works, and it seems like a really solid system. And I'm going to try it out, and I'll report back to you guys at some point.
1: I look forward to hearing about it. So let's stay with Ubuntu, kind of, and as we know, they dropped that bombshell a few months ago about abandoning Unity and Convergence and Ubuntu Touch, but UbiPorts, who were originally just about porting Ubuntu Touch to new devices, vowed to carry on with it, and some people were skeptical, including me, I'm afraid, but here we are with the first stable over-the-air update. And... I've tried it out on a Nexus 5 and I must say it's working pretty well. I don't know if that's where Ubuntu was just before it was um, axed, you know, shut down, or whether it's the work of the UbiPorts guys, because I had kind of, I'd, I'd seen it coming, so I'd kind of lost interest in Ubuntu Touch, to be honest. Whereas now my interest has uh, ramped up definitely with with this OTA. And they're calling it stable. And from my brief testing of it today, I think it's fair to call it stable. You know, Joe, I think it's a little of both. Reading the release notes, it seems like a lot of hard work
0: has gone into this. And they've implemented some new features like the Open Store. Have you had a
1: chance to look at that? Yeah, I had a quick look at it. One thing that jumped out at me is you don't need an account to install apps. You can just open it up and just start installing stuff, which I think is great. That was always a bit of an annoyance before having to create an Ubuntu account and give them my email address and everything. Whereas now, just open up, open store and start installing
0: stuff. Wow, that is really impressive. I right, a big tip of the hat. And I'm sure, you know, things could always change, but that's nice just to be able to get started. Also, speaking of just being able to get started, a terminal and a file browser are now pre-installed. You know, it's the little things.
1: Yeah, and the terminal, I took some photos and then SCP'd them up to another machine. Worked absolutely perfectly. And it's, it's so refreshing to have a proper Linux box in your hand rather than trying to install apps and try and hack things to get a proper terminal going. Now, I'm going
0: to be real with you. This isn't going to get me away from a mainstream smartphone anytime soon. But I am so thankful to see projects out there that are hedging against Android. And one of the things this project is involved with is Halium. As you may know, we've talked about it, I think, in brief on Jupyter Broadcasting in the past. But it's a it's a layer that's going to standardize the Android hardware compatibility between Linux distributions. So this layer is something that they can all target. And it solves the problem that Android device drivers can't be used natively in a regular Linux system.
1: Yeah, it aims to deduplicate effort, doesn't it? Whereas you had all these projects doing the same thing. Now they've decided to get together, like Plasma Mobile, for example. And so it's good to see that that is actually coming along now.
0: Yeah, the Plasma Mobile folks showed off Plasma Mobile running on a Fairphone 2 using that Halium intermediary layer today, I think, or yesterday. So it's getting pretty close. And that's, if nothing else, something that's going to be
1: benefiting a lot of open source projects. Yeah. And something else that's interesting in this announcement um, is they're talking about Anbox, which is a way to run Android apps on Linux. And they accept, it's really good to see that unlike Canonical, UbiPorts accept that it is very important for them to be able to run Android apps on Ubuntu. Well, it's uh, Ubi ports—that's another thing. They—they they don't know what to call it, but you know, we'll—we'll we'll get to that. Yeah, that's up in the air for now. Andbox though does look interesting. They compare it to Wine for Linux,
0: and they say it's probably not going to be the same. But they believe apps like WhatsApp,
1: Snapchat, and Netflix may be usable in andbox, which that would be great for the platform. That seems very ambitious, given that they're going to have to rely on Google Play services and stuff, so they're going to have to get that stuff going. Uh But at least they're thinking about this stuff. And it's it's something that, I don't know, was it arrogance of Canonical to not consider Android compatibility? Because if you look at something like Sailfish, that has got it. Tizen has got it to some degree. And I think it is important to have that for your new platform, because if you can get Android apps running, then it opens up so many more apps than the, the small number of native ones you have and, and attracts people to your platform.
0: Arrogance uh, could be one way to describe it. I would be more charitable and say it was probably adhering to a vision because this wasn't just about an experience on a phone, it was an experience on the tablet and on the desktop. And so you needed, you needed Qt and QML applications to really achieve that. And an Android application looks really awkward in a desktop experience. So it was probably more adherence to vision, but it might have been tunnel vision that didn't benefit the platform
1: yeah i suppose so and um they talk about unity um which is y u n i t so unit unit i think it's supposed to be unity, but it's a stupid name anyway, and that's the the fork of um the desktop version of unity and they had originally said they were going to be working with those guys well, it doesn't look like much has happened, but they are acknowledging that, and they are looking to to work with them in the future so that we'll get proper convergence. I mean, it's remarkable to me how far they've come in a few short months compared to where Canonical got with it. I suppose they, they've got the building blocks there already and they seem to be really going for it. And we've seen Firefox OS die. We've seen Selfish not doing brilliantly. Tizen is kind of ticking along. And it's good to see a proper GNU slash Linux phone, you know, rather than Android, which is becoming more and more proprietary. It'd just be nice to have an alternative. And they say that we don't need to compete with Android because we're not a big company. We we don't have a huge staff to pay and all that stuff. So they're just going to make something that is good and hopefully people will come and use it. It's also
0: about enabling older devices. Your Nexus 5, for example, perfectly good phone. Google's not really interested in maintaining that anymore. Why not throw something like this on there and get another year or two of value out of it? Or even if you got another nine to ten months of value out of it, you have a
1: file browser, you have a web browser, you have a terminal. It's now useful. Well, I don't know, that you still have got Lineage available for it and a bunch of other arms. so I'd probably be more inclined to do that if I needed to use yeah. this as a daily driver. It's just
0: your use case and, and your preference, I think, and it's just nice to have another option for
1: hardware that's still perfectly good, but the rest of the industry has moved on from. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really do hope that UbiPorts continues. I, I wasn't optimistic, whereas now they've proven me wrong on that, so I really hope they continue to do so and drive it forward. And I think sometimes it needs a big shock to shake things up, doesn't it, and and change the perspective on things. And hopefully they're going to be the people to do it. I agree. And
0: speaking of big shocks, the last release of FreeNAS was a big shock, and the project made an about-face and went back to version 9. And now FreeNAS 11 has been released. They've jumped right to FreeNAS 11, and it's based on FreeBSD 11, so it's nice to have those
1: versions match up. Yeah, it's as if they've kind of said, well, let's just forget about 10 and move on to 11.
0: This looks like a hell of a release. It's introducing a new beta version of their administration GUI, so you have the new GUI and you have the old classic one which is selectable at the login screen. It's based on some Angular JS magic. It just it looks great with live stats, but that's that's the least of the story here. I'm very impressed with the team has done. It's really forward-looking. So I think a couple of the big headline features, though, are the new alert services page, which configures the systems to send critical alerts from FreeNAS to other applications like Slack or PagerDuty, AWS's mailing system, HipChat, like, etc. Mattermost is on the list. That
1: is a forward-looking feature. I'm going to have to be characteristically negative here. <laughs> okay. So should it not just be doing one thing really well, Unix-style? should it not just be a really great network-attached storage distro? Does it really need to have all these other features?
0: Well, they're standing on top of a FreeBSD 11 release, which is using ZFS for the file system. So that
1: stuff is pretty rock solid. That explains why when I went to download and install this, I noticed, hang on, It needs 8 gigabytes of RAM. That's the kind of minimum spec for it. Yeah. yeah. And so I thought, I'm not going to chuck this on an old box, and I'm definitely not chucking it on my main machine. Yeah, ZFS can use some RAM, especially if you have a lot of storage. Yeah. It just seems overkill, for my needs at least. I think this is much more aimed at enterprise, isn't it? It's definitely getting there. In fact, one of the new features that I thought was really
0: impressive is it can now emulate an S3 server, like an Amazon S3 distributed file system server. It's using the open-source Mino project, which provides S3 storage on FreeNAS, so you can then build your cloud, quote-unquote, applications to talk S3, but communicate locally to your FreeNAS server. Oh, so that's going to potentially save you quite a lot of money then. I think that's the idea, and then you build, you build for S3 in mind, you use it locally, and then if it comes time to publish it on AWS, you don't have to really refactor much of your code, it's just sort of change the URLs and you're good to go. That's my assumption.
1: Yeah, as I said, enterprise-level stuff, really. This is not the kind of thing you're going to download, chuck on an old box, and and repurpose an old laptop. I think they're trying to do both. They're introducing features that make it
0: easier to host things like Plex and other home user features, but they're also introducing features that make it nicer for developers and business deployments. Which, why not? If you have a rock-solid BSD foundation and a rock-solid file system, you really have a lot of latitude there to build features on top of that. I think You might be right. It might begin to the point where it's too large. But then we have our friends over at OpenMediaVault that have a new release. Yeah,
1: why are we talking about a BSD thing on a Linux show? Let's talk about something that's for proper Linux based on Debian. So we've got this brand new release of Debian 9 and brand new release of OpenMediaVault, OpenMediaVault 3, based on Debian 8.0.
0: Yeah, Hmm. I think that whole transition to system D kind of took them by surprise. So they had to adapt their back end to system D, which required a complete refactoring of the back end of Vault,
1: I believe. Now, I I tried to install this today, right? And you get through the NCurses Debian installer, and it gets to a point where it says you have to pick the disk. Now, I didn't read it properly. It said it's going to use the whole disk. But it did also say that you will confirm at the next screen. So I selected the disk that I wanted, pressed enter, and then suddenly it's installing and destroyed all my partitions. I was like, no. Yikes. Thankfully, that's what that machine is for. It's a test machine. And yeah, I lost my Solus and Kubuntu and uh, a few other. I had a Zubuntu partition that I was using um, somewhat in production, but there was nothing there that wasn't backed up, put it that way. But (laughs) it was still kind of annoying. That, that happened and so then afterwards I was like right I'm not trying you out then so I haven't actually tried this release out but it looks like they've improved things um, even if it is based on this ancient version of Debian now yeah but these releases of Debian
0: are supported like I said for five years and the the nice thing about this release is they've added support for extended fat which is going to make the next feature even better they've also improved USB rotational storage device detection. I mentioned that because that's the very system I'm thinking of using for Angela's Open Media Vault to rotate a backup off site between buildings and you can hook up devices and move them around. She's got an Open Media Vault 3 installation release candidate, so I gotta go over to her house and update that for her. Can't you do it over SSH then. Joe, then I would have to open up ports. Come on, Joe. Come on. <laughs> you know, I could I could consider doing something like that because they've uh,
1: they've enabled SSH by default in Open Media Vault three. <laughs> yeah which a mm, bit of a questionable decision. I know that the, the Raspberry Pi Foundation are being criticized for doing that on on the uh, Raspbian distro it's It should be easily turn onable if you know what I mean, but i mm, I'm a little bit hesitant to say it should be enabled by default. I tend to agree, especially because most users are oblivious to what it is, and those mm. that know what it is probably know that they need to turn it on, yeah exactly, yeah. Interestingly, also, i386 has been dropped, so it's 64-bit only, which is a trend that we've seen all over, Arch, Tails. It's just the way of the future, isn't it? If you've got 32-bit only hardware, then it's getting increasingly difficult to find a distro to run on it, and uh, eventually they're just going to have to be thrown in the bin, unfortunately. Maybe you won't be able to put it on that old rig after all. Well, you can put it on an old rig, not an ancient one. Because unless it's a netbook, how old has it got to be to be 32-bit? You're talking more than 10 years, aren't you? Probably 12, 13 years, maybe more. You know, Joe, my long years of experience have taught me not
0: to go cheap on the systems I never want to have to futz with. So for Angela's setup, we put a NUC in there and then attached it to a hardware array of disks that have built-in RAID array. And then OpenMediaVault just connects to that. And it's been just set it and forget it, and I don't have to mess with it because it's decent enough hardware that'll run for a while. There's really not many moving pieces in a NUC, and that storage array has redundancy. And... The nice thing is, is I don't have to really worry about a power supply going out for a long time. I don't have to worry about the video card dying or something like that. I say, if you can, put a slightly nicer machine in there, so that way you don't have to futz with it. That's Chris's law of file servers.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, you should have other backups anyway, and this is a great way to get into network storage. Fair enough, and why not take advantage of hardware you have to learn? I completely agree. I just mean, when you get to a point where you're ready to put something in like an appliance, consider it. You just love buying new toys, don't you? That's what it boils down to.
0: (laughs) Speaking of new toys, get our show every single Monday. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get episodes. We also have stickers at linuxactionnews.com slash stickers and linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. We'll be back next
1: Monday then with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. See you later.